Good morning. It is by the grace of God that I stand before you upright this morning. And it truly is. I had that thought, I don't know if it was last night or the night before. I'm in quite the fog. But, uh, but I was thinking as I was lying in bed, the fever and chills and all that fun stuff, like, man, if I preach on Sunday at this point, after five, six days of this, then it will be by God's grace. And it is. And I am grateful for his kindness to me that, that I'm well enough to stand before you this morning. So uh, we can praise God for that. And I, I certainly do. If you would open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. That's where it will be this morning in our lesson. I've been trying to preach more from the Gospels. And there's several reasons for that. Um, Honestly, I think the epistles can be a lot easier to preach from, um, and acts and lessons like that, they can, they can be a little more straightforward. Here's what we're supposed to do, here's how the church ought to operate, or here's attributes we need to, we need to practice this and, and this, and they're a little, bit, a little bit easier to understand sometimes, easier to preach from. But I think that's also the reason that we sometimes neglect the Gospels in our preaching. And the truth is, the Gospels can be challenging. The Gospels are tougher. Uh, in, in multiple, multiple ways. They're tougher to understand, uh, on the one hand. There's a lot of parables and a lot of symbolism, and Jesus doesn't always come right out and say exactly what he means. Sometimes he just demonstrates it, or sometimes he, he talks in those parables. But also the Gospels are more challenging to practice sometimes than some of the epistles' uh, instructions are, because well, sometimes... Paul's writing the epistles or the other writers are to certain people or churches or having specific issues that they need to work on. Jesus in the Gospels talks a lot about our hearts. He talks a lot about what's at the core of us and how we need to change ourselves at a very fundamental level. I think that makes it, the Gospels that is, that makes them both challenging to understand but also challenging to practice. And so my goal is not to neglect the Gospels but to take on their challenge, and hopefully we can, we can dive in to them and find what Jesus is trying to get across to us, who would be his disciples. And so we've got a lesson from the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, sometimes we look at the individual episodes within the Gospels on their own. A lot of times we'll have an account of Jesus going to a certain place, healing a certain person, and then he moves on, or being with a certain group of people, and then he goes to someone else's house and does something different. And a lot of times we take those accounts individually and want to preach from, from one of those. And that's certainly good. That's, I think that's a profitable thing to do. I mean, those, when we take those individually, those are the interactions that individuals had with Jesus. I mean, that's what this person's experience was with Jesus. And I think there's a great, great value in looking at them that way. But yet, I know that sometimes in doing only that, I miss the bigger picture or the point of maybe what some of those narratives joined together are trying to communicate. And I think that's what I've done up until recently with the accounts given in Luke chapter 5. So this morning, I want to share with you some observations from the first three accounts in Luke chapter 5. And the reason is, these are accounts that taken together have helped me see more clearly who Jesus was also have helped me see how he viewed the world, and ultimately have helped me see what matters most to Jesus. 
So this is the lesson that I have been talking about for several weeks that I keep shelving because I wanted to preach other things and finally pulling it out this week. But it's amazing how, how much it, as I was thinking about it, it seemed very applicable to things that have been going on uh, and things I've been thinking about as well. So uh, let's begin this morning by reading the first of these three accounts that I want to consider, and that's found in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So right away, what we can see from this first account is that Jesus calls the first disciples, and he shows that what matters to him is actually not what you might think would have mattered to these people very much, and that's not financial success. I mean, you think about these people who he has come up to, Peter, James, and John. For these guys, fishing is not a pastime. For these guys, fishing is their livelihood. This is their way of supporting themselves and their families. So with that in mind, imagine their frustration, and not just their frustration, but their worry about having this whole night where they caught absolutely nothing. And that's cause for concern. And so that's where their minds are as far as fishing goes. When Jesus finishes teaching the crowd from the boat, and then he tells Peter to launch the boat and let down the nets for a catch. Of course, Peter basically says, you do know, right, that we worked this water all, all night, like literally all night, and we didn't catch a single fish, right? I mean, since it's you who's asking, Jesus, I'll do it, but just so you know, don't expect anything, because all night, nothing, okay? So they do it. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing slightly there, but uh, you, get the, you get the idea. And of course, we're familiar with what happens next. They catch so many fish that they desperately need help hauling them all in. And you know what I'd be thinking if I were one of these fishermen? I'd be thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is what we've been waiting for right here. If Jesus can miraculously ensure that we're going to catch this many fish every time, we're going to be the most successful fishermen ever. I mean, we're never going to have to worry about money. We're never going to have to worry about success in our business. We're never going to have to worry about providing for our families, putting food on the table. I mean, we're set. And I don't think I've always given thought to just how much financial success Jesus could have had if he had chosen to pursue that. I hadn't really thought about that. But when you look at these guys and how he interacts with their livelihood, wow. I mean, this could have been a serious money-making machine. But it's true. If Jesus had, had continued to, to apply his power to this, 
there's no doubt he would have enjoyed financial success, really unlike anything the world had ever seen. We have millionaires, billionaires today, but Jesus having this kind of power, I mean, he would have been even beyond, beyond that. But of course, that's not what he did. Instead of saying, yeah, that's right, Peter, let's get this business really going. I mean, I'm going to show you how it's done here. He doesn't say that. What he says is, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That makes a serious statement. And it helps us understand, I think, why Peter, James, and John all dropped their nets. Helps us understand why they walked away from their father standing in the boat and why they followed Jesus without hesitation. Because when Jesus worked this amazing miracle, he made a statement that while he had the power to ensure that these fishermen always caught plenty, meaning they would be set for the rest of their lives, there was something more important to be fishing, and that was men. And so by this statement made through this miracle, Jesus shows us that what mattered to him was not financial or business success, but spiritual success. The life Jesus called these men to, which is also the life he lived, as we see his example throughout the Gospels, was not one of material prosperity. Honestly, the opposite, if anything. You think about the, where the Gospels tell us that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Not a very prosperous life, was it? But to Jesus, it was clearly a life of greater value and greater importance than even a life spent accumulating great wealth. And that should say something to us. If we see somebody who has the option to achieve unbelievable financial success and they turn it down for something they think is even more significant than that, then surely at the very least our interest is piqued. We want to know why they would do such a thing. I mean, we would certainly be interested if somebody in the world stumbled on to a way to make millions and, and walked away from it, right? Somebody has this incredible idea and people want to, want to buy it and mass produce it, and they say, no, no, thanks, I got something more important. You're like, okay, well, what's the more important thing? I mean, you got to make even more money? Not for Jesus. What was more important was spiritual success, catching men and teaching them the gospel. So a question for us. Are we more interested in spiritual success than we are in physical success? How much time do we spend in a week, no matter what stage of life we are in, trying to ensure our physical success? How much time do we spend on education? How much time do we spend on work? How much time do we spend on planning and making sure our retirement goes as smoothly as we want it to go? And how does that compare with how much time we spend in a week trying to ensure our spiritual success, both for ourselves and in evangelizing to those around us. What kind of effort do, does that comparison reveal? Jesus demonstrated powerfully that spiritual success is incomparably more important than physical success. So do our lives show that? Do they show that? Another consideration. What about for our kids? Nearly everybody, it seems, talks about wanting better things for their kids than they had. You hear that a lot, right? I want, I want better for my kids than, than I had. 
So is what we want most for them to grow up and make more money than us, to get higher education than us, live in a nicer house than us, have more than us? Or is what we want most for them to have a closer relationship with God than what we had? What matters most to us? Physical success? Are we setting them up so well for physical success? All the education, all the the opportunities, uh, but neglecting to prepare them spiritually? Is what matters to Jesus what matters to us? That's the question I want to return to over and over again this morning that I think these accounts are pointing us to. Is what matters to Jesus what matters to us? Not financial or business success in this case, but spiritual success in reaching the lost. Things to think about. The next account begins in verse 12. Luke 5 and verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus heals this leper, and surprisingly, he shows that what matters to him is not popularity with the many. He says, tell no one. Really? You don't want anybody to know about this? I mean, come on. This is a golden opportunity. This is free advertising, word of mouth. This is a testimonial right here from this guy. I mean, this, this guy was, he was full of leprosy, the text tells us. And he was just healed. I mean, surely he's, this guy is ready to rock and roll, telling everybody about Jesus and how amazing he was, and you got to see this guy. And I bet he would have gone even further. I would imagine if Jesus had asked this guy for just about anything, he could have named whatever he wanted, and this guy would have done it. I bet he would have. I mean, this could be a great launching point for Jesus' ministry to really explode. I mean, he's going to pack him in this Sunday. It's going to be huge because this guy is going to tell everybody about it. But Jesus, again, does the unexpected. Of all the directions he could give, of everything he could ask of this guy, what he says to the leper is, tell no one. Don't tell anybody. Really? Yeah. And instead, what does he say he does want this guy to do? Show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing. Jesus, seriously? You're throwing away a golden opportunity. I mean, this, this may not come again. This guy is ready to do whatever. I mean, this could be really great. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Because what matters to him isn't popularity. It's not popularity, but it is closeness with the Father. Jesus wanted the leper cleansed by the priest in accordance with the law of Moses, so that this guy could rejoin the covenant people of God. He wanted him to be restored. So instead of encouraging the leper to broadcast the message about him, he sent him 
to the priests to take care of that. And then Jesus himself also denied an opportunity for his own popularity. Now these crowds, they are gathering, and people find out regardless. And they want to hear him. They want to be healed, and he's getting popular. And what does he do? He says, yes, come, follow me. No. He withdraws to desolate places, and he prays. He's the son of God. I mean, does he really need to pray? Yes. He does. Powerful. And so the question for us, I think, is are we concerned less with popularity and more with true relationship with the one who we really need to know, the Father? Are we so concerned with worldly things and standards that our prayer life suffers because of the distraction that those things are? Has busyness become a badge of honor to us? How are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Things are busy. Is that a good thing? Is that what we're going for? I mean, I get it. Things get busy sometimes. But if that's all we ever are, are our priorities in the right place? Have we become much too concerned with worldly standards and social events and not enough concerned with connecting with God and being close with the Father? Another thing to think about. We talk about evangelism, and we ought to. We ought to want to grow the borders of God's kingdom. That's a core part of who we are as Christians. But when we talk about evangelism in this community, when we talk about growing this church, are we seeking to grow this church so that we can get bigger, fill the room with better singing, and be proud of what we've built, and have a nice full auditorium? Or are we seeking to guide people into a genuine relationship closeness with the Father above. What matters to us is what matters to Jesus, what matters to us. Not popularity with the many, but closeness with the Father. We can get ourselves really, really far down the wrong path, trying to be well-liked by everyone. And guilty as charged, people pleaser, right here, 100%. So now you know. But that's not what Jesus cared about. Jesus cared more about being close with the Father and what the Father thought of him than he did what others thought of him. So what matters to Jesus, what matters to us. I don't know about you, but I have a lot to work on from what Jesus shows us there. And then the last account is in Luke chapter 5, verse, uh, beginning of verse 17. This well-known account reads like this. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of God was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but... Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. It's a well-known story. And so what Jesus does here in this account, I think, is he heals the paralytic let down through the roof, and he shows that what matters to him is actually not mostly physical health. The text in Luke 5 seems to indicate to us that the men who brought this paralytic to Jesus were concerned primarily with his physical healing. They wanted his, his paralyzed state to be healed. I think that's supported when we consider the the note about Jesus having the power to heal in verse 17 and the way this man is primarily identified as being a paralytic. So his physical condition seems to be a focus as we get the setting for this account. And, of course, the men are willing to go to great, even unconventional lengths to to get Jesus uh, to be able to, to see this man, to get this man to Jesus. And even though perhaps they were seeking physical healing for him, Jesus doesn't challenge them about this and say, don't you know there's something so much more important? But what he does do is instead of healing the man's body, Jesus does the unexpected. and He forgives the man's sins. He heals him spiritually. Hmm. It's kind of also unexpected. You'd have to think this may have felt kind of like a letdown to those guys who went to all these links to get this paralytic to Jesus And after all that, guess what they're going to have to do? Carry him right back out of there on the same pallet they brought him in on. I mean, okay, forgiveness of sins, that's that's great. But, I mean, we were hoping for a miracle. We don't get a record of the response, though, because the scribes and Pharisees interject with this big accusation of blasphemy, at least perhaps in their hearts, but Jesus knows but they say only God can forgive sins. And of course, Jesus famously asks, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or, or to say rise and walk to a paralytic? And then Jesus proceeds to confirm his authority to forgive the sins by also healing the man physically. But let's not miss the fact that by relegating the man's physical healing to simply a demonstration of the fact that he was fully authorized to heal people spiritually, Jesus is showing that what is most important to him is not physical health. It's not to say that physical health has no consequence to Jesus at all. He healed a lot of people, and he cared, certainly. But what is most important to him is clearly not physical health, but it's spiritual health. Had the scribes and Pharisees not objected, we don't even know if Jesus would have healed the man physically. Maybe he would have. Maybe he wouldn't. We just don't know. What we do know, though, is that his first priority here was to forgive the man's sins, to heal him spiritually. And what I believe this tells us is that to Jesus, a person's spiritual health is of greater importance than their physical health. And don't get me wrong. Like I said, Jesus had compassion on people who were suffering physically. He does care for those who are suffering physically. And he shows that throughout the gospel accounts. And really, that's truly one of the amazing things about the Son of God. That he could have that kind of compassion. He had that kind of sympathy because he was God in the flesh. 
But even in those instances where he doesn't forgive sins first, what the Gospels tell us is that he was also teaching the Gospel. He was teaching the people about spiritual things, and then he was using those miracles, it seems like every time, to confirm the legitimacy of what he was saying and calling them to spiritually. And so what even those accounts show us, and especially what the account of the paralytic in Luke chapter 5 shows us, is that what ultimately matters most to Jesus is not our physical health, but our spiritual health. Consider what he said in, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And I think what Jesus is saying here is what I think we see him demonstrate in Luke chapter 5 as well, which is that what matters most to Jesus is not our physical state, but the health of our relationship with him and with the Father. And I'll be honest with you, this past week has given me great pause to think about that. It really has. Sick for quite a while, and I'm still sick. And uh, that was not fun. And during that time, I, I found myself praying a lot about my physical health. I was asking God a lot, please heal me. I was frustrated. Frustrated that I'm sick. I mean, I, I have work to do. I have a job to do. I mean, it's not like <laughs> I can be sick and nothing happens and the, the whole world stops, right? I mean, and, and plus, I mean, there's spiritual work to be done. God, why would you possibly want me to be sick for, for this long? Plus, it's, you know, the second time in the same month that I was sick. I mean, that's just, you got to be kidding me. And so I tried all kinds of medicine. I went to the doctor even. And that's when you know it's bad. I usually don't go to the doctor. I just try to take over-the-counter stuff, but, but I did because I wanted so badly to be healthy again, to just be well and be able to go about my normal day. But as I'm praying fervently about my physical health, I started wondering just how concerned God actually is with my physical health as he answered that prayer by saying, no, you're going to be sick for a little while longer. So I thought, well, does, is God really worried about this? Maybe he's not. I mean, I know he cares about what's on my heart, and he cares if I'm struggling with this, but from accounts such as this one, I, I know that physical health is actually not what's most important to him. And in fact, I think what Luke 5 shows us is, is that his concern for our physical health pales in comparison to his concern for our spiritual health. And so then, after a while being so frustrated that I've been sick again... I started thinking about what potential spiritual lessons maybe I'm supposed to learn from this. So I'm going to be stuck here in bed, chills and fever and can't get warm and that just ugh, miserable state. Maybe there's something I'm supposed to learn from this. And so I realized that when there have been times of spiritual sickness in my life, I was not nearly as frustrated about them as I was this past week, being sick again physically for the second time in a month. And I, that struck me. I felt very convicted by that. I, I don't feel the same urgency and the same frustration about being sick spiritually. I'm like, well, you know, I'll, I'll get better as, as I can and with the grace of God and in his own time, and he's still working on me. Well, that's true. 
I noticed I don't feel the same frustration of why am I still stuck in this? I mean, occasionally I do, but, but I feel that way about my physical sickness. Why do I not feel that way about my spiritual sickness? And I'll say also that difference became even more clear to me by the lengths that I went to to try to heal my physical sickness. I tried everything, it seemed. I tried what seemed like a gazillion different varieties of medicine, decongestants, antihistamines, and uh, acetaminophen, and ibuprofen, and then the doctor gave me cough medicine that <coughs> that was not planned. Um, does not seem to be working quite as well as I'd hoped. Um, but I tried medicine, I tried rest, I, I tried water, I even tried healthy eating. I mean, come on, I'm doing everything I can. I tried going to the doctor, and then it hit me. When I've had sin in my life that needs to be dealt with, did I try to deal with it like that? Or did I just do a little here and there? Maybe read a chapter of scripture a day and hope that it eventually I'll, I'll get better from that spiritual sickness. The truth is, when I've had sin in my life that needed to be dealt with, I have not always sought healing so urgently as I have, even just for this seasonal flu that has made me physically ill for a week. And I'm ashamed of that. But not only do I see this in how I handled my sickness, but I even see it in how I I handle it when other people are sick and when people ask for prayers. I don't think it's wrong for us to do that and to pray for the, the physically sick, but my prayers often focus mostly or even entirely on only their physical health. Because when I was younger, I would hear a lot more people pray, and they pray for those who are physically sick and maybe list them. And then they'd go on and say, but we also pray for those who are spiritually sick. As a child, I was like, man, this isn't like every public prayer. It's probably just a vain repetition. I don't even know what this is really. I mean, I know what it's talking about, but we say it all the time. But as an adult, I tell you what, I, I long for the days when that was a landmark feature of our public prayer. And the reason is that that language is completely true to what Jesus showed us was important to him in the Gospels. And to your credit, I've heard several of you pray things such as that, especially when non-Christians are battling illness and when we are considering their state without Christ. And so let me just say, I, I can't put into words how encouraging and important I think that is. But I also know that for me, often it's so easy to get bogged down with the lists of ailments that people in our lives that we love are dealing with. Then I get to the end of that list, and I have forgotten completely to pray for what Jesus showed is actually most important to him, their spiritual health, no matter what their physical condition is. And so again, I I turn to this account of Jesus healing the paralytic, and I'm reminded of the core gospel truth. That what Jesus is most concerned about, even more than our physical health, truly is our spiritual health, the status of our relationship with God. And so yet again, a third time, the question for us this morning is, is what matters to Jesus, what matters to us? And do we show that in our lives? And that's the question I want to leave you with this morning. So yet again, here's the invitation, but... Yet again, it's an invitation aimed at us, who are Christians, primarily. But think on that question. 
Is what matters to Jesus what matters to me? Look at Jesus in the Gospels. His priorities look like my priorities. As we read the Gospels and as we come to know Jesus, continually becoming better acquainted with who he was, if we find that what matters most to Jesus does not matter most to us, as it has often been the case in my life at least, let's be willing to reorient our lives. Let's be willing to change. Let's let's be radical about this. I mean, I confess that in a lot of these things, it's been upside down in, in, in my life from what Jesus valued, what mattered most to him. And if it has been in yours too, let's not be afraid to make a radical change. And maybe to look strange to the world, but that's okay. Because the kingdom of heaven is a radical kingdom. Completely radical. It's not radical politically in the sense that we usually think of a radical. It is radical instead in what it calls every single individual here to do in response to the almighty kingship of Jesus Christ in our own lives. That's what's radical about the kingdom. And so let's be willing to lay aside opportunities for financial success, as Jesus called the early disciples to do. Let's lay them aside in exchange for lives that are focused on saving souls and and being successful not in our career endeavors, but in reaching people with the gospel. Let's not spend all our time working when there's so much work to be done in the fields of sowing the seed of the gospel. Not saying we shouldn't provide for our families. Certainly we should. We should work. If a man doesn't work, let him not eat. You know, that's certainly biblical. But if that's what we spend all our time doing, we're not prioritizing what matters to Jesus. Let's also be willing to lay aside social pursuits and this desire that is in so many of us, self-included, to be well-liked and to be popular and to realize that Jesus did the same. He laid those things aside in order to give priority to his relationship with his Father. And so let's endure whatever social strain, whatever difficulty we must that comes as a result of our unwavering commitment to love God most of all and to be careful to follow all he has called us to. And then finally, let's be willing to shift our focus from trying so hard to preserve our physical health on this earth, which we do a really good job of. we got a lot of medicine, and we spend so much money. We have insurance to cover all of it, and we go to a lot of effort. But let's shift our focus from that to viewing our spiritual health as what is of true importance and what needs our utmost attention. And so let's be aggressively seeking spiritual healing, even more aggressively than we try to find solutions to our physical health problems, for both ourselves and for those we know and we love around us, recognizing that our greatest need of all is to be whole and healthy in God's eyes, spiritually. Is what matters to Jesus, what matters to us, let's make it so. While together we stand, while we sing.